Good day, everyone. You are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. My name is Rick Cole, and I'm coming to you from what is today the very snowy Niagara region of Ontario. Now, each week we take you on a trip down memory lane, back 50 years, and we look at all the hockey news from that time period. In this episode, it's the week of November 22nd to 28, 1970. This is the time we'd like to tell you that our podcast is made possible by our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and uh, they've allowed us access to all their files, and that's been critical in enabling us to explore all the hockey news from 50 years ago. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company in downtown Port Colborne, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and a few short blocks from Lake Erie. The Breakwall Brewery crafts some of the finest beers that you'll find in southern Ontario, in fact, anywhere in Ontario, and they also have some of the best pub food on the planet. During this pandemic, as we go through wave two, it's tough for everybody, and if you happen to be anywhere in the Niagara region and can and can support support the break wall that would be a really great thing to do they're good people they put out a great product and you'll always have a good time at the break wall we also like to uh remind you about our new patreon account now uh, that that's an account that we have that enables people to subscribe for some very special bonus content that we put out for the subscribers uh it's not expensive five dollars a month uh and what you get is early access to each week's podcast, including the one we're doing right now. These podcasts on Friday will always be free, but you get early access to it. You can get it a day or two early and you get access to some very great bonus content where we delve more deeply into the issues that were uh, dominating the hockey news in the ni- 1970. For example, we are going to look at how the media treated the death of Terry Sawchuk, uh, we're going to de- take a deep dive into the regime of Ned Harkness in Detroit, the darkness with Harkness. And we also have uh, a series of interviews we've done with some hockey people, and we'll put them up as well. In fact, we have a clip out on uh, Twitter this week where we give a little snippet of a very interesting discussion we had with former Maple Leaf goalie Ed Chadwick. Go to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe, and we thank you. Last week, we had uh, quite an interesting uh, episode that went on, uh, really uh, interesting stories. Uh, we had a little more detail on the departure of general manager Frank Selke Jr. from the Oakland Seals and who might replace him. Uh, those rumors were floating around everywhere. Uh, we talked about the Buffalo Sabres and Punch Imlac making their first journey to Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto to play the Maple Leafs Imlac's former team, whom he worked for for 11 years. And, of course, it turned out to be one of the highlights of Buffalo's inaugural NHL season. And we reported on all the talk about the possibilities of a National Hockey League franchise for the city of Edmonton. We learned there are people in the city actively working toward that goal. We found out who they are and uh, why they were so optimistic that they were actually going to get a team. Uh, for this week, uh, there was a d- busy week on the ice and off the ice for uh, the hockey world. Uh, we have some very, very interesting stories. Gordy Howe had a big game for the Red Wing 
Red Wings, and then he was hurt. We'll tell you what happened, how long he might be out. We'll learn a bit about a Maple Leafs rookie whom writers in NHL, other NHL cities were calling the Tom Sawyer of the Toronto Maple Leafs and who at this point, uh, going into the week, had not yet scored his first National Hockey League goal. And we have another story of a city looking for an NHL team. We'll tell you which community is angling for a club, who's behind it, and what the chances are. First up this week we have some of the more interesting game highlights. The first game we want to look at involved the Detroit Red Wings and Philadelphia Flyers, and you could say this one was a microcosm of how the Detroit season was going and probably how it was going to end up. The Red Wings won the game, something of a rarity to this point in the 1970-71 season, but in the process... They lost superstar Gordy Howe due to an injury. Even when the Wings did something right, it turned out very bad. It was Gordy Howe clutching his aching ribs, and a wisecracking teammate made a remark, and Gordy said, Don't make me laugh, it hurts when I laugh. It hurt on the left side of the rib cage where Gordy had fallen on the right skate of Flyers defenseman Joe Watson as the two fell in a tangle to the ice somewhere near the Philadelphia goal. That tangle prevented the 42-year-old Howe from seeing his second goal of the evening, which went into the net as the play unfolded. Uh, that gave the Red Wings a 4-2 win over the Flyers in the spectrum on that Sunday evening. Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Bruce Keaton, a fine hockey writer, was in the Red Wings dressing room after the game. Gordy was still there. And Gordy said, where did it go in? I told it found a six-inch gap between the stick of goalie Bernie Front and the right goal post. Hal Grindon said, I didn't even see it, but I had an idea it was going in the net. Because he was fallen, Hal missed seeing what surely must have been one of the prettiest of all his 773 National Hockey League goals. Gordy was standing 12 foot deep in the slot, took a pass from his production line center, the great Alex Fats Del Vecchio, and in the left face-off circles where he received it. All in one fluid motion, Gordy controlled the puck, spun to his right, around Watson, and let a shot fly. The puck never got more than two inches off the ice as a whooshed home for a 3 nothing red wing lane with 12 minutes gone in the second period. The Red Wings told reporters after the game that Howe would undergo x-rays in Detroit when the team arrived home. Gordy told reporters that uh, the doctors said his rubes are bruised, but he said, I think I tore up the cartilage. And if you've ever had torn cartilage in your rib cage, and I have, it's an awfully painful injury. The capacity crowd of 14,620 at the Spectrum just fell silent as Gordy lay on the ice grimacing. You could tell he was in a lot of pain. They then gave him a standing ovation as he was helped off the ice, uh, teammates on either side, but he was finished for the evening. Uh, yet there was a question of whether Howe or the Flyers ached more over the play. The Flyers, offensively challenged at best, uh, battled and battled all night, but they never could come up with the tying goal against Red Wings goalie, the veteran Roy Edwards. And when Frank Mahovlich, with a score 3-2 to two for the Red Wings and 39 seconds left, fired a puck into an unguarded Philadelphia cage, the Red Wings' sixth victory in 19 games 
was assured. It was Mahavlich's second goal of the night. He had scored at 4-11 of the second period to break a scoreless tie, and Howe added the first of his two goals just 17 seconds after that. Then Alex Delvecchio, who's almost as old and just as gray as his grizzled right winger, picked up assists on all four Red Wing goals, and he was really the catalyst for this Detroit team all night. Alex Delvecchio with a great game with four assists. Now, it's thought that Howe's injury was the same type that defenseman for the Red Wings Ron Harris suffered in the season opener for the Red Wings. And that was a disability that knocked him out for nine games. And the Red Wings really can't afford to lose Gordy for any stretch like that. Ironically, Harris uh, was jolted in the ribs again in the second period in this contest this night. And he didn't see much action after that as well. Now, how hard is this going to be on the Red Wings? Well, they're already in injury trouble. Veteran defenseman Gary Bergman didn't play. He's got a knee injury. And right winger Bruce McGregor, one of the most dependable of the Red Wings, he wasn't in the lineup either because he had the flu. Fortunately, though, for Detroit, they had the big line, at least until Howe was injured, of Delvecchio, Frank Bahovlich, and, and Howe. And goalie Roy Edwards uh, was doing a great job for them in this game and that kind of closed their five game coast to coast road trip where they had two victories and a tie against two defeats and that record really indicates what uh, the Red Wings are this year they're not good they are at the very best mediocre going 2-2-1 on this road trip now the Red Wings still trail fourth place Vancouver Vancouver yep the expansion Canucks are in fourth place in the eastern division and the Red Wings still are behind them by four points Vancouver had played two more games however and will have played three more games than the Wings by the time they face Detroit this coming Thursday in the Olympia so the final score once again from the Spectrum in Philadelphia on the first Sunday night of this week was the Red Wings 4, the Flyers 2, 6 win in 19 games for Detroit. Although it was a win in the uh, standings, a devastating loss for the Red Wings if Gordie Howe was to be out for any length of time. Our second highlighted game of the week is a midweek contest between the Chicago Blackhawks and Montreal Canadiens at an always packed Chicago stadium. It was a good hockey game and the best team won, boasted coach Billy Ray after the Hawks drubbed the Canadians. Well, actually, he didn't drub them, but they dropped them 5-3, and that ran the Chicago unbeaten string to six wins and three ties in their past nine games. Now, as far as saying the best team goes Billy Ray was right on this one uh, Chicago ran the home record to eight wins and two ties on a pair of goals by young Brian Campbell who was acquired in that big trade with the Kings last March Bobby Hall had his 12th of the season and Dennis Hall Bobby's younger brother and Cliff Coral also scored for Chicago Montreal goals came from Jean Beliveau, Rajon Hull, and Claude LaRose, and that kept the score at least respectable. But as far as Habs coach Claude Ruel was concerned, the Canadians gave it away on continual mistakes in their own zone, and assistant coach Al McNeil readily agreed with that assessment. 
Ruel said, you must play this game with heart and desire, and there's no way to play when a team gives up goals the way we did. Ruel not happy with his players again. Uh, there wasn't much really that the players had to say after the game. Now, although Rogi Vashon in goal for the Canadians appeared weak on a couple of the shots that beat him in his first appearance in two weeks as Phil Mir has been taking over in goal, Ruel refused to fault the goalie who stopped 24 other shots. Asked by Chicago or Montreal reporter, I'm sorry, Pat Curran of the Gazette, about uh, Vashon's play, Ruel said, it's hard to blame the goaltender when your forwards and defensemen can't even pass or shoot the puck out of their own zone. You wouldn't find assistant coach McNeil disagreeing with Ruel on this game either, and you could tell Al was visibly upset. In fact, he was so upset that Claude Ruel just let McNeil do some of the talking. McNeil said, you can't play in the National League without bodily contact. If we play that team man for man, there's no way we should lose. Blame the goaltender? Not tonight. The Chicago goals were just frosting on the cake. It was our mistakes which led up to them that did the damage in this game. And by the way, speaking of uh, the bodily contact that uh, McNeil mentioned, uh, he there was just a general lack of it at both ends in this game. It was a very genteel affair for the most part. The only solid check of the night came when seldom used defenseman Paul Schmier of the Blackhawks charged at John Ferguson and knocked him to the ice in the Chicago end with about 13 seconds left in the game and the issue no longer at doubt. Fergie tried to take on Schmier, but he was pulled away by uh, un- unidentified interlopers. Then he incurred a misconduct sentence for going across the ice in a bid to battle with the Hawks defenseman over by the penalty box. Overall, referee Bruce Hood called seven penalties against each team in this game. Only the Hawks capitalized on power plays with Campbell scoring in the first and second periods for his ninth and ten goals of the season. And what a bonus he has been for the Blackhawks. He was basically a throw-in in that big trade last year that brought Bill White and Jerry Desjardins to Chicago. Ruel did a lot of shuffling of forward lines and, and his defense in an attempt to lift the, the Canadians who uh, quite admittedly lacked any drive at all in this game. One of his moves was benching of Mark Tardif halfway through the second period with Reggie Ewell replacing him on the left wing the rest of the way and Tardif did not seem to enjoy the experience. Uh, young defenseman Pierre Bouchard finally got a chance for some ice time. He replaced Serge Savard on the blue line. Uh, rookie Bouchard was seldom in trouble on or on the ice, and he wasn't uh, around for any of the Chicago goals when they were scored. So that's a good sign for young, uh, the young son of Butch Bouchard, former Canadians great. One of Ruel's patented moves, though, did backfire on him in this one. Uh, he's got a tactic of changing lines right off the opening faceoff. But uh, I'd say that blew up in his face when the Hawks scored their first goal after only 18 seconds of play. J.C. Tremblay lost the puck to Pat Stapleton near the Montreal blue line. And Dennis Hull uh, took a pass from Pat on the left wing. And he drilled a howitzer, a 25-footer, past Dashon on the short side that Rogie still probably hasn't seen and couldn't have even been picked up on radar. It was that quick. Canadians got that goal back in the third 
third minute of the game on a fluky play. Yvonne Cornwise' pass was behind John Beliveau, but the puck hit the big center skate and deflected past Tony Esposito, shocked in the Chicago goal, and uh, he was going the other way. Tony had no chance on the play. A hook and penalty to Terry Harper paved the way for uh, Brian Campbell's first goal in the seventh minute. Stan Makita did the spade work there. Uh, he retained the puck uh, along the boards in a, in a battle with a, a couple of Canadians, and then he set up Campbell, who was all alone uh, with nowhere near him, just outside the Montreal crease, and and Brian made no mistake. Cornway was off for tripping when Campbell scored the same way this time on a relay from Bobby Hull, who was playing setup man at 6:09 of the middle frame. The Habs got that one back four minutes later when Mickey Redmond stole the puck from Schmier, who uh, that had a terrible play on this one, and. Uh, Redmond got the puck to Jacques Lemaire, and he shot high from 25 feet. The puck hit Razor Yule's shoulder, and again, bounced past a shocked Tony Esposito. No chance on that goal either. So the Blackhawks beat the Canadians by a score of 5-3, to three, and in this one, what you really had to worry about was the lack of drive, the lack of motivation that the Canadians seemed to display in this game. These two teams could very well be the best in the NHL, although the Bruins will have something to say about that. But the Blackhawks are running away with the West. The Canadians are contending in the East. And if the Bruins falter at all, the Canadians and the Blackhawks will be the two top teams. Montreal has to show up in these games against teams like Chicago and Boston. And if they're not, then there's something wrong somewhere. And that's a problem that general manager Sammy Pollock is going to have to address. Our final highlighted game of this week's show was a Saturday evening match at Maple Leaf Gardens between the Toronto Maple Leafs and Detroit Red Wings, two of the pre-expansion clubs that have fallen on hard times this year. And in this game, the Detroit Red Wings indicated that the Toronto Maple Leafs may not be the most disappointing team in hockey, although if you're around Toronto these days, you'd never know that. The Wings failed to do pretty much much anything well while losing nine to four to what uh, before this game were considered the biggest NHL flops the Maple Leafs. Davey Keon scored twice while killing penalties for the Leafs in this game Ron Ellis fired a pair of goals while Guy Trache, Paul Henderson, Norm Ullman, George Armstrong and Daryl Sittler with his first National Hockey League marker contributed one each for the Leafs. For the Red Wings, Gary Unger, Tom Webster, Frank Mahovlich, and Al Kylander netted their goals, but they didn't get anything before the Leafs had built up a 6 to nothing lead. The win was Toronto's second in a pair of games against the Red Wings this season, but this time the Wings played without Gordie Howe, Gary Bergman, and Ron Harris. The lineup was filled with such names as Lajeunesse, Brown, Camp and assorted other promising players who make the Red Wings a tomorrow team, not a today club at all. 
They're struggling with inexperience right now, along with a lot of other issues. Ron Ellis of the Maple Leafs summed it up pretty well when he spoke to Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail after the game. Ron said when Detroit loses Gordie Howe, they're going to be in trouble. Not much more to say other than that. And as we could see with Howe out of the lineup with a torn rib cartilage, the trouble is more than apparent. Detroit is perhaps the only team in the National Hockey League's Eastern Division with less chance of success than last season. They have not improved at all, especially with Gordy gone. Thinking ahead to Howe's retirement, the Wings dealt goalie Roger Crozier uh, to the Buffalo Sabres for a young right winger by the name of Tom Webster, who's going to be a good one. Crozier has served like a magician in goal for the Sabres, while the Red Wings have struggled along relying with only one goalie, and that is veteran Roy Edwards, who may not be able to shoulder the load alone. Jimmy Rutherford, the former Hamilton Red Wings junior goalie, played last season for the Wings Central League team, uh, started the season in Detroit, and he basically sat on the bench for a while before he was judged unsatisfactory after a few brief appearances between the pipes for the Red Wings. So Don McLeod was called up from Fort Worth, and he made his first appearance in the third period of Saturday's game after Edwards had allowed six goals. McLeod equaled Edwards' three-goal a period average by giving up that many of his own in the final 20 minutes. On defense, the Wings have only one player with extensive NHL experience, and that's Dale Rolfe, and that's because Bergman's out, and until he and Harris recover from their injuries, the Wings have to rely on fellas like Jerry Hart, Larry Brown, Jim Niekamp, and Serge Lajeunesse. Of course, a big problem for the Red Wings is that Carl Brewer, uh, the man who probably contributed most to their increased success last season, walked out and retired in training camp. And Bob Bond, his defense partner both with the Leafs and with the Red Wings last year, was produced by coach Ned Harkness as unfit for further services and he was put on waivers and claimed by the Buffalo Sabres. And we documented the crazy ride Bond had uh, where he's going to end up in Toronto. Now you add to this the well-publicized rift in Detroit management and the disappointing play of youngsters Gary Unger and Nick Libet, both who've been very promising in the past, and this team has more troubles in more places than any other, including the Maple Leafs. Gary Unger told Proudfoot, the team just can't get going. I haven't been able to get going myself after missing training camp. He had an injury when he fell uh, awkwardly in a motel swimming pool on the eve of training camp. Gary says, I'm not right either physically or mentally. Unger elaborated. He said, the team isn't playing well either. We can't get together. There's no communication. Unger even has problems with his haircut, which is too long to fit in with Coach Ned Harkness's concept of team appearance and discipline. Gary says it doesn't have anything to do with the game. If it was messy or grubby or got in my eyes, then it would be relative to hockey. But it doesn't get into my eyes and I don't see any reason why I should wear my hair like a 48-year-old court. Harkness is actually 49. 
Now, of course, we must keep we must keep in mind hockey cliche number one forty eight, which says that winning teams are happy and losing teams complain, and the Red Wings definitely fit into that latter category. Against the Wings, the Leafs did everything smoothly that they haven't been able to do in uh, previous games this season. They treated the young Detroit defenseman basically with disdain. Trache and Ullman scored on impressive power plays. There was uh, not much heavy hitting, but Jim Harrison scored the cleanest knockdown of the night on little Billy Day, and goalie Jacques Plante even bumped into a few wings while venturing from his goal crease, and he seems to be doing that a little more this season as well. Usually, the Leafs have trouble scoring. They've averaged three, uh, just about 3.3 goals a game this year, but that includes three one-sided wins. In the other 18 games other than those three games, the team has averaged only 2.35 goals per match. Against Detroit, Passes were clicking and shots hit holes like they never did earlier in the season. And of course, Harkness, the Red Wings coach, had an explanation. He says it was just one of those nights. George Armstrong's uh, goal was his first of the season, and that leaves the Chief just seven goals short of the Toronto Maple Leaf team record for goals in a career which is owned by, uh, now with the Red Wings, Frank Mahovlich. Frank scored 296 goals before being traded to Detroit in March of 1968. Again, it's cleared in. McKinney knocked Libet down. And it's Monahan back in the net over to Pellick and to Keon. Keon up the center, shot the puck in. Monahan goes after it, McLeod. Wrapping it into the corner, Libet hands it right to Armstrong. Armstrong took his shot, it's out in front of the net. Picked off by Detroit, Libet coming back, and there's Keon. It tips it right off, Glenny stick, blocks him out. Wrapped it off the boards and out over the blue line, and Monahan has it. Monahan missing a body check from Hart. Keon trying to center it from back of the net. Bill has it, Monahan shoving. Here's right in front to Armstrong, stays Keon. Uh, Davey Keon digging behind the net, going to one side and then the other. But Monaghan being tied up in the front, finally slipping that puck to Armstrong. And this shot never left the ice. Right along the ice and just hitting that right goal post and beating McLeod cleanly. And that's a big goal for the Chief. That's his first one on this Toronto tournament. goal scored by number 10, Armstrong. Assist number 14, Keon. And number 20, Monaghan. The time, 16.58. Daryl Sittler's goal was his first as a professional, and that was also the first goal that Don McLeod had allowed as a NHL player. The line, tries his shot, gets it again. Closing in, gets his shot again, and this time McKinney. Quick pass for Walton, one man back. Walton with Sittler, closing in. Sittler takes the pass, takes the shot, scores! And it's his first NHL goal. And there he goes and picks it up. And he got the word from Ward. Well, there's a happy young fellow, Bill, and a well-deserved young goal and a nice play by Mike Walton, who took a look and saw him coming up late and just flipped it over. And the young fellow from London, Juniors, fired a tremendous shot. Past uh, Don McLeod for his first National League goal. Toronto goal scored by number 27, Sittler. 
Assist number 16, Walton, and number 18, McKinney. The time, 1.41. Keon's goals were all up. Superb efforts. Two of them, as we mentioned, shorthand of the three he had on the night. Uh, and he almost got, uh, he's got four shorthanded goals so far this season. And he almost scored a fifth when he was given a breakaway, uh, but got hooked by Dale Rolfe late in the third period. In fact, there were only 19 seconds left. The record for shorthanded goals in one season in the NHL is held by the former Boston Bruin Jerry Tapazzini, and he scored seven in the 1957-58 season. Red Wings captain Alex Del Vecchio missed the final period when his knee began to stiffen up from a fall he took earlier in the game, and it uh, bothered him most of the game, but when it stiffened up, Fats decided to call in a night. Del Vecchio suffered the minor injury in the first period when he skated over George Armstrong's stick and he fell knee first to the ice. After the game, Del Vecchio said his knee felt better and he intended to dress for the Sunday night contest against Montreal at the Olympia in Detroit. By the way, Alex did dress for that game and he collected two goals in a 5-3 Detroit victory over the Canadiens. So talking about Daryl Settler's first NHL goal gives us a great segue into our next feature, which is about the Maple Leafs rookie, the eighth person overall chosen in the uh, NHL draft last June by the Maple Leafs. Uh, His first NHL goal was uh, against the Red Wings uh, and was a very, very nice marker. Very good milestone for a kid who's been struggling to find the net but he got it on this night, and that is surely to be one of many more to come. Dan Proudfoot of the Globe and Mail actually profiled Daryl this week, and, and he had he was one of several uh, actually hockey writers around the NHL who wrote about Daryl this week. And, and Dan started his article in a very good way. He said, "You got to pardon Daryl Sittler if he makes the occasional goof. The make." the occasional mistake you got to be patient if he hits goal posts or he fails to score in his first five games with the Maple Leafs he's going to be a regular just wait for it it's going to come uh Sittler is the only rookie with the Maple Leafs directly from a junior a hockey team and uh, most of the people who watch these things and are qualified observers say they like what they see about Daryl they feel he's going to be a great player and a great leader. Uh, they put the label can't miss on him. Uh, we hesitate to do that. Yeah, don't like to jinx a kid. But in Sittler's case, they're probably uh, pretty pretty accurate. In fact, Proudfoot says that uh, people around the league are, are giving such glowing reports on the kid. The only way to find out uh, that... Uh, he does anything poorly you have to talk to Daryl himself who's quite honest about his abilities and where he has to improve Toronto coach Johnny McClellan loves the kid he told Proudfoot he's big kid he's six foot 190 pounds and he's willing to learn he's not a know-it-all he listens that's important and even though he's a center we could put him at left wing so he could play regular and and there's no griping or anything when, when we do that. He, he'll he go wherever we tell him to go. He just went out and played as hard as he always has when we switch positions on him. You got to say, we were pretty lucky to get him. 
Now, what Johnny McClellan means by that is that Sittler was picked eighth overall in the amateur draft, as we mentioned. He worried at the time, as did Jim Gregory, that there were seven other teams picking before Toronto and any of them could have had young Sittler instead of one of the others. So getting him at number eight, the Leafs were very happy to see him there. He was a guy they wanted all along, knowing they couldn't get any of the big guys like Dale Talon and Gilbert Perrault. And I think the Leafs were pretty happy with that uh, selection. So after sitting as more or less a an extra forward bench warmer, dressing for games but not playing uh, for 13 games, Daryl uh, was told by Coach McClellan that he should be getting ready for regular appearances as a left winner winger against the Bruins. But even after talking to McClellan, Daryl didn't really believe he'd be a, a regular left winger. Daryl said, I thought he meant I'd play left wing until Mike Walton's knee was better. Who who plays right wing for the Bruins? Let's see. Johnny McKenzie and Ken Hodge? Daryl was worried all of a sudden who he'd have to be checking against, and those are two pretty good guys. Now, as it turned out, Sittler's play against the Bruins was impressive, and it's been impressive ever since. He skates well, he shoots quickly in spite of checking, and handles and carries the puck with a lot of confidence for a 20-year-old in his first professional experience. He's wearing number 27, which of course, as everyone knows, once belonged to Frank Mahovlich. But you know what? It doesn't look out of place on Daryl Settler. Settler told uh, Dan Proudfoot that he was not worrying about scoring his first goal. This uh, interview took place before he got that goal on Saturday night against Detroit. What he did say is that the chances were coming, and he knows as a hockey player, if you're getting the chances, the goals are bound to stop going in. But while he's playing, he's learning, and that is what's so, so important. Daryl said while he was on the bench, he didn't learn much at all. He said, nobody said much to me except for King Clancy. He told me not to worry that I get my chance. Now, Jacques Plante talks to me a lot, as does Bobby Bond. Jacques told me after our game in New York that he noticed I would get the puck in their end and I would shoot too soon, like from the boards. Now I try to move in more to the center before getting a shot at the goalkeeper. Darrell also uh, mentioned that Jacques Plante was the guy who noticed that in their game in Montreal, Darrell would always be the last guy off the ice when his line was was changing on the fly. Daryl hadn't noticed that, didn't realize that that was happening, but he said Plant was right because uh, you can get too tired out there and you can make mistakes. It took a veteran like Jacques Plant to pick up on that, and, and good for Plant. He let the rookie know exactly uh, what was going on. Daryl also appreciated the advice he got from Bobby Bond on a couple occasions. Uh, he recalled that on, on uh Saturday's game, Bond went to him immediately and uh, said that the Leafs were using a new system here initiated by McClellan and Bond saw that Daryl didn't quite understand exactly what the system meant, that he shouldn't be afraid to, to question and to ask if you're not sure what's going on. Bond, by the way, uh, completely explained what the Leafs were planning on doing and it showed up when the Leafs played later games that week. Daryl said on this occasion, he said, I got it confused. The center shot the puck in the corner and I ran. Remember, Daryl's playing left wing at this point. And according to the new system, I should have gone in after it. I was with my check and I hesitated. 
Then Bob hesitated, thinking I would go after it. You can't do that because then I left both of us out of position. But Bob was very good, explained it in a patient manner. You know Daryl won't make a mistake like that again. Daryl explained a lot of the other development of changes that was happening in the leaf system that McClellan had initiated. Uh it happened uh, actually in the manner of the lease forechecking. McClellan's original system when he took over the team was to send in a pair of forecheckers into the opponent's corners. Now the center forechecks and the wings stay back ready to check the opposing wings. Daryl said that John changed his style the day after the Montreal game. This way, the defenseman can stand up at the blue line. It's a better system defensively, and it worked well for us in that game against Oakland. Daryl said that you don't get as many chances as a forward under this system, but the chances you do get tend to be clear-cut, uh, much much better chances on goal. Daryl adds that it's not as exciting as the fa- for the fans, maybe, but it is efficient and it does get the job done. Daryl also notes in his first professional season that the differences between junior and NHL hockey are uh, the passes are quicker. Uh, you have to take them at speed. You have less time waiting for teammates on defense and the NHL checkers are on you uh, faster than you could ever dream they would be in junior. Now, regardless of all that, you have to consider that Daryl Settler at age 20 has arrived in the NHL. You know that already. When Daryl tells you he's already agreed to work at two hockey camps next summer, Halliburton Hockey Haven and the Orwalton Sports Camps as well. Daryl Settler, now a regular in the NHL with the Maple Leafs, has a bright future. Dan Fischler in a uh, one of those special to the star reports uh, has a story this week that another NHL city is working on bringing a big league team to their arena, and that would be the uh, fast-growing community of Nassau County, Long Island, New York. They have a $21,500,000 arena now being constructed there, and Silas Edmond, who is the president of something called the Nassau Coliseum Corporation, told Fischler that he has discussed with National Hockey League governors the possibility of eventually obtaining an NHL franchise for that 14,000-seat arena, which is slated to open in the fall of 1971. Mr. Edmund says that we believe Long Island's two counties with a population of two and a half million people merits a big league hockey team. The NHL owners I've talked to say prove it and you'll get it and Edmund says I think we can prove it. Of course there are some problems that the people of Long Island have to consider. Long Island is most certainly territory normally that would belong to the New York Rangers and the senior New York Hockey Club will have to be compensated in some manner and I don't think that compensation would be insignificant. In fact, the Rangers have their eye on the Nassau County Coliseum Arena as well and they're thinking about putting an American Hockey League farm team in that arena to replace 
the former Buffalo Bisons AHL team, and they've gone so far as to have Ruby Pastor, the ex-Bisons president, have discussions with Emil Francis and the people from the Coliseum. They seem to have the inside track for operating a team in that arena. But Pastor's plan, of course, is on a collision course with that of Al Barron, who's the president of the Long Island Ducks of the Eastern Hockey League, who says he's going to bid for an American Hockey League franchise. Barron said, there's no question, but I'll go all the way to the highest court in the land if I'm bumped out of that new building. So stay tuned. There could be some drama coming for that new arena in Long Island. Uh, more trade talk this week. The rumors of that Toronto-Boston trade seems we've talked about it for a month now just won't go away. Uh, Milt Dunnell, the Toronto Star, said the Bruins are trying to get the Leafs interested in uh, their young left winger Garnet Bla- Bailey, whom they're offering to Toronto for Mike Walton. Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star says that the Leafs do not want to be the victims of another Milt Schmidt heist similar to the ones he pulled off when he dealt with the Chicago Black Cox in that big trade of May 1967 with Chicago. Also mentioned in the abundant trade talk this week were Leafs Jim Dory, Jim Harrison, and of course Walton again. Walton told Dan Proudfoot, who's been busy this week, of the Globe and Mail that he expects to be traded any day now. Dory complained about his lack of ice time and he said that's a good indication he's probably on the way out and he speculated that maybe he would go to an expansion team on waivers. There was a trade of some consequence this week and it was Buffalo Sabres general manager Punch Imlach again at the center of all the wheeling and dealing. This time Punch went and brought in a couple of big names to the Sabres, big names at least in terms of recognition if not playing stature in this 1970-71 season. Imlach acquired from the Los Angeles Kings forwards Eddie Shack and Dick Duff both of whom helped punch win Stanley Cups in Toronto in their years with the Maple Leafs in the early 1960s. The pair, who were both traded away from Toronto by Imlac, were traded by the Kings to the Sabres for a player to be named later. Imlac said that he talked to Duff, who immediately said he was happy to be coming to Buffalo, but Punch said, I can't find Eddie Shack anywhere. Quick note on uh, the SEALs situation again. SEALs Vice President Bill Torrey said he was refusing the offer from owner Charles O. Finley to become the general manager of the SEALs and that he was leaving the team immediately. Bill's statement went like this. It is with a regret deeper than mere words can express that I announce my immediate departure from the SEALs hockey club. Circumstances not of my doing nor liking force me to make the decision at this time. It now looks like Coach Freddie Glover will end up having to take over as general manager as well. And one more hockey note. I guess I should have brought this up with a Long Island talk, but last week we told you about the movement of foot in Edmonton to bring NHL hockey to the city. Well, that dream just ended with a resounding thud. This week, 
after a vote by city ratepayers. Turning out in large numbers in the wake of a snowstorm that dropped temperatures below zero in Edmonton, the ratepayers turned thumbs down on the Omniplex Center said by its boosters would be without equal in the entire world. The final count on the vote The past Wednesday night was 38,060 or 53.9% against the bylaw that would have established the Omniplex Sports and Convention and Entertainment Center to be constructed. A simple majority was needed to pass the bylaw as more than half of the approximately 132,000 eligible voters turned out to cast their ballots. The money bylaw was contained in a plebiscite held in conjunction with a by-election to fill a vacant city council seat. So the center called the Omniplex is not going to happen and with it, it appears, will go the dreams of an NHL team for the city of Edmonton. So that's our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn from this most eventful week in hockey? Well, we learned that Punch Imlac believes if you can help his hockey team, he'll bring you on board even if he traded you away in the past. Dick Duff and Eddie Shack found that out this week. We learned a bit about the Leafs rookie, Daryl Sittler, who scored his first NHL goal this week. And we learned that while New York City might gain another NHL team, the city of Edmonton may have just taken itself out of the running. We have some pretty neat stories going on for next week's show as well. Uh, Harold Ballard and Stafford Smythe will officially regain their positions at Maple Leaf Gardens and we'll tell you how that happened. There are more rumblings of a coaching change in the offing for the Canadians as uh, complaints about the style and demeanor of Claude Ruel continue to surface and a lack of harmony between Ruel and the players is uh, spelling doom for his tenure as the Habs bench boss. We'll also hear how Pete Stemkowski is making out after at first balking at the trade to the New York Rangers before he finally reported to the Big Apple's NHL team. And we'll have all the usual game results, news and notes from around the hockey world. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Andy does a great job. Can't thank him enough for all of his hard work. And Andy is now in the business of producing podcasts professionally. And if you're thinking of putting something together, get a hold of me. I'll put you in contact with Andy and he can probably set up something very professional for you. Our uh, intro and exit music is provided by the Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, The Rural Alberta Advantage. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter every day at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. And we have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. You can get this podcast through any of your favorite podcast apps and you can contribute to our project at patreon.com slash hockey50years. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into our show. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the